Well, welcome to our next edition of what we're calling our Starting Point Mornings, which are simply conversations that uh, we feel people even outside the church, even outside of a life of faith, uh, would be interested in having. Uh, this morning, we're pretty confident that people all over the place are interested in this kind of conversation. We've titled this morning's Starting Faith uh, discussion, Church and State. Uh, but before we kind of really get into it, I, I feel like I need to make a couple disclaimers. So I guess first things first, disclaimer number one, uh, this morning is not going to be a conversation specifically about politics per se. Okay, we're not going to be talking about, you know, right wing versus left wing or, you know, which way God or the Bible would lean. We're not talking about who God would vote for or anything like that. Um, We've been playing over the fall uh, a welcome video that in it has repeatedly said conservative or liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. And uh, so we're not going to be making a case for any one political side or point. We're not going to be making political arguments or having a conversation this morning for a specifically political agenda. Okay, so if you came expecting that, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint. The other thing we're not going to do that I know a lot of people these days are interested in talking about, especially given the results of a week ago Tuesday in the United States, is we're not going to kind of analyze what's been going on, or even more specifically, analyze the U.S. presidential election from a like, political or technical level. You want to do that, you can you know, turn to CNN or go on you know, any sort of social media or online forum. We're not going to assess, you know, the electoral college and whether that system works, given that uh, Hillary Clinton got more of the popular vote than Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump won the presidency. We're not going to talk about, you know, whether the polling system uh, that was, you know, kind of setting people up before the election is somehow off, what the problem is. Uh, we're not going to talk about how Donald Trump won, uh, you know, whether that was a, a message against the political elite or a message of privilege or of, you know, uh, kind of rural, middle class, uh, you know, whites or anything like that. We're, we're not getting into any of that kind of technical political stuff. That stuff, I'll say at the very least, is out of my league, although it's certainly part of the conversations that people are having. And so I just want to kind of respect the fact that, that people are having that. We're just not going to talk about that part today. What we're going to address today in our starting point morning on church and state is just that the, the general feeling that I feel like all of us have had, no matter which place we land on the political spectrum, that has felt like things have been pretty ugly lately when it comes to how politics work. Maybe exemplified or amplified by what's happened over the last number of months in the U.S., presidential election. You know, starting with just a, a, a sense of the character of it all. And, and not just the character of the candidates, but the character of just the, the conversation, the character of the primaries, the character of the, the media. I mean, we have heard so many terms like, you know, racist and bigot and crook and liar and xenophobe and hobophobe and, 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 and these are, these are the kinds of terms you find in prison, not in <laughs> presidential campaigns. And, and I feel like, you know, the, 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 the character, the language, the vitriol that's happened over these last number of months has kind of taken our Western society almost down to, you know, maybe a, a new low or a low we haven't experienced for some time. In fact, um, even as far away as in Germany, um, 
they were kind of getting a sense of what was going on in North America, and especially in the U.S. these last number of months. And just before the U.S. presidential election, um, they posted this uh, as the cover of one of their major magazines in Germany. Check this, check this out on the screen. Isn't this wild? You know, that, that, that's kind of the global sense, isn't it? That this has just been a level of mudslinging like we haven't had before. And it's left all of us with kind of a, kind of a lousy, kind of a sour taste in our mouths. And I think people are wondering, what, what is that? You know, where does that come from? You know, and then we take the step back. And I know I have this conversation with a number of people, you know, where we, where we want to kind of analyze or critique the underlying system of politics that kind of permits that or, or, or maybe even breeds that. And again, remember the disclaimers that I made at the very beginning. We're not going to talk about politics per se. We're not going to go and critique democracy. Let's just kind of go with Winston Churchill's comment that democracy is the worst of all forms of government except all of the other forms of government that have been tried from time to time. We're not going to critique democracy, but I think it's worth us at least conceding that in a democracy, the process of getting elected is a very different skill set and a very different process than the process of actually leading what it is that you would get elected to lead or the environment in which you would serve. The process of get, getting elected, the candidating process, is a very different you know, stage in the journey. It's a very different skill set required by people. And you know, it, it, it does things to people. You know, that the candidating, for example... It, it fundamentally lacks authenticity. It almost forces you to not be authentic because you've got to highlight the upside of your strengths while you hide your weaknesses. Candidating is inherently polarizing because you have to do the exact opposite with the candidates that you're competing against. You have to highlight their weaknesses and hide or downplay their strengths. And then, you know, with what's at stake, especially when you're talking about something like the U.S. presidential election and how close it is, it really demands kind of a, a dog-eat-dog, dog, you know, all's fair in love and war kind of, kind of intensity. And so the, the whole candidating process, not necessarily the system of democracy itself, but the, just the candidating process that's required, the, the campaigning, um, it really adds to bringing out the worst in us, doesn't it? And so you've got this, you know, this character that no one really feels great about. And then when you take a step back, you've got this kind of underlying system, especially in the campaigning process, that no one really feels great about. And, and then add to that the fact that none of us really have a whole lot of control over changing all of this. And it just kind of leads, leaves you shrugging your shoulders, especially if the candidate or the political party that you side with ends up losing. So the question in all of this is, what do you, what do, you do with all of this? And from a, from a faith perspective, maybe the more specific question is, you know, what, what would Jesus or the Bible say about all of this? What, what, what would Jesus or the Bible say about the whole political landscape and system of politics in our, in our day and age? Well, if you're new to conversations of faith and spirituality, and you're, you've come just for this starting point conversation, or you're checking us out online, you may actually be surprised with the answer to that question. You may actually be surprised with the answer to what Jesus would say to the condition of our kind of political climate. Because one of kind of the major truths of the Bible when it comes to Jesus is that the person of Jesus came to establish essentially a new society. That's, that's essentially the purpose of why Jesus 
came to earth according to the scriptures. In fact, the Old Testament of the Bible kind of predicting or forecasting the coming Messiah or Savior sent by God says this among other things in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Now, appreciate that this is a, a, a passage, it's a prophecy in the Bible that's often shared at Christmas time. Because it speaks specifically to the predicting of the promised Messiah or Savior sent from God. Essentially, it predicts the birth of Jesus. But what I hope that we can appreciate in kind of re, in reading it or rereading it, perhaps, is that the vision of this promised Messiah was to set up kind of this new society, this new world order of sorts, where they would play the role of king and serve society as their kingdom, with their kind of their loyal subjects. And, you know, for many people throughout history, as they've understood, you know, faith and the promise of this Jewish Messiah, that's what they've understood, that the Messiah was going to come up, was going to come out and set up this new society, this new form of government, so to speak. But we need to appreciate that for a number of years, you know, even for hundreds of years, what people, especially Jews, assumed was that this promised Messiah would literally set up an earthly government, that this Messiah was going to play a political leadership role. But Jesus corrected that when he walked the earth. In John 18, 36, he said this to certain civic officials in his day. Jesus said to them, my kingdom, the one that was promised before, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. See, Jesus was clear when he walked the earth that yes, he was here to establish a kingdom, to create a new society, but that new society was in no way intended to be political. It wasn't intended to be governmental at all. In fact, this new society, Jesus clarified a number of times, was intended to be spiritual in nature. Jesus, the Bible teaches, came to earth to set up a new kingdom, to set up a society. But that society, the Bible teaches, was inherently spiritual. And if you're new to this conversation and you're wondering what that means, a, by, by spiritual, what I mean is literally of and by the spirit of Jesus. See, a lot of times we celebrate the death of Jesus as his sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sin of humankind. And, and certainly that's part of the good news of Jesus. But the truly good news of Jesus isn't just that he died. It's that he actually rose again. And in rising from the dead, the scriptures teach, he made his living spirit alive again. The very spirit that enabled him to live with the capacity and the posture and disposition and way of relating that the scriptures record he lived on earth. The Bible teaches that through Jesus' resurrection, he made that spirit available, and not just alive, but available to invade the lives of other believers who'd been forgiven by his death and sought to follow him in faith and now could receive and then rely on that same spiritual resource for themselves. 
Ultimately, that's why Jesus came to earth, and that's why he died, so that he could rise again. He didn't die because the government officials got the best of him, and he was a failure at upheaving the government. He died because he wasn't trying to establish an earthy government. He was trying to establish a spiritual kingdom by rising from the dead and making his spirit available to invade the lives of others. What the Bible often refers to as the Holy Spirit. And if you're wondering why that's so important, this is why. Because without the power of Jesus' spirit living in people, humanity fundamentally lacks the capacity to live the way God, let alone we, have always dreamed we'd be able to live. Take a look at what it says in the New Testament after the life of Jesus in a book uh, called Galatians, a letter to a church in a place called Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5, it says there, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, Literally just le- meaning when you, when you live apart from the life of God. The results are very clear. There's a list. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. But the Holy Spirit, this risen Spirit of Jesus produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ask yourself, which of those two lists, the list of what life is like apart from the Spirit of Jesus working in you, or the list of what, (coughs) excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit of God you know, working in and through your life is about which of those lists feels more like the last number of months when it comes to our political climate. Does that help you understand why Jesus wasn't so concerned with establishing a political governmental system and why instead he felt it's so necessary to establish a spiritual one? Because a political system appreciate only works from the outside in. It doesn't change human hearts. It doesn't change people from the inside out. It doesn't change our attitudes. It doesn't change our values. It doesn't change our habits. And it doesn't change our character. Only the inside out, heart transforming work of the risen spirit of Jesus can accomplish that. Only, the scriptures teach, through the risen spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, can individual people begin to live the way that they've always dreamed. And as if that wasn't cool enough, the Bible says that the spirit of God doesn't just do transforming work. It also does unifying work. And so as the Holy Spirit is transforming individuals, he's also unifying individuals with other being transformed individuals into communities. And the cool thing is that as these communities of being transformed individuals are together being transformed, transforming one another, that a groundswell begins to create and they start to become a transformational agent in the part of the world where they find themselves. And this whole movement of transformation begins from the inside out. Take a look at what it says in Acts chapter 2 in describing what this early community looked like. It says, people who believed what Peter, one of Jesus' followers, said about Jesus were baptized in, you know, agreeing in faith. They were baptized 
And they were added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. And all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place. They shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions. They shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Gang, that's a great picture of the kind of new society that the Bible says that Jesus came to earth to create. Not a political one, not a governmental one, a spiritual one but a spiritual one where because of his risen, resurrected spirit invading the lives of forgiven followers of his, people individually could be transformed from the inside out. And then as they were transformed from the inside out, they were unified with one another. And then as they were unified with one another, transforming one another from the inside out, that could spill over into a broader society and become a transformational movement where onlookers looked with awe and unbelievers wanted to become a part. And all of a sudden you have a flavor for a kind of lifestyle. And you have a flavor for a kind of society that many of us in this day and age, many of us in this political climate are hungry for. And it makes you kind of appreciate that maybe the vision that God had in sending his son Jesus to earth wasn't so crazy after all. That maybe there was actually something to the mission and purpose of Jesus in establishing this new society of building and expanding his kingdom on earth through what he calls the church. Now I want to call a little bit of a timeout, just so especially those of us who are new to this conversation in this starting point environment can really grab hold of this. I want us to make sure that we, that we really grasp two things here. I want to make sure that we really grasp, number one, that this the establishment of his kingdom on earth through communities of restoring believers called the church is the mission of Jesus. That's what Jesus is interested in doing in the world. A lot of people, especially if we're new to faith or we're outside of faith, we assume that, you know, this Jesus guy, yeah, I get it. He came to earth to die and forgive sins so that people who follow him can get into heaven when they're dead. That's sort of how it works. You know, that Jesus came to, to save people. And for sure, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to the saving work and implications of Jesus' death. But you need to know that the Bible is very clear that Jesus didn't intend just to save people from something. Jesus intended to save people to something. He intended to save people for something. And the end goal that Jesus has in mind is not that people would populate, you know, some place when they're dead. The end goal is that they would be part of something while they're alive and begin to experience the realities of eternity today. That's why if you comb the accounts of Jesus, we call them the Gospels, the four bio biographical accounts of Jesus' life, you know, you'll never see Jesus te teaching people to say, you know, God, get me to heaven. God, get me to heaven. Or, you know, God, save me for heaven. He never taught people to say or pray that. What he did teach people to say or pray is recorded in Matthew chapter 6. Things like this. Where he says, pray this, may your kingdom come soon and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
appreciate, first of all, that Jesus is much less concerned about getting people on earth to heaven and much more concerned with getting heaven on earth in and through the lives of people. That's what building his kingdom and establishing his new spiritual society is all about. Okay, I hope that we can camp out and, and grasp that. Secondly, I hope that we can appreciate just how distinct this spiritual society is intended by Jesus to be from any political system or government or empire. Now, Jesus was very clear about this when he walked the earth. I know I talked to a number of people, especially outside the church, who really hope that, you know, in our day and age, we will experience a dynamic that they call the separation of church and state. You want to know something? Jesus expected the very same thing. Look at what it says in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 12. Jesus said to someone there, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. He was talking about uh, specifically a Roman coin that had the, the image of Caesar on it. And he said, whose image is on this? They said, well, it's Caesar's. He said, well, give to Caesar then what belongs to Caesar. But when he says, give to God what belongs to God, he's also assuming that there's something with God's image on it. The Bible says the thing with God's image on it is you and me, people, humanity. And he intends that people and humanity that are in God's image ought to be given to God. What belongs to Caesar goes to Caesar. What belongs to God goes to God. And the intent in saying that is he's kind of separating what, what the government is about and, and really not depending on it at all to achieve his purposes in the world. And I think that that's a very important for us to appreciate, especially as we consider the political climate of today, because I think one of the side plots that I want to really get into, but I feel like I need to address, is this assumption that a life of faith is intended to be played out in politics. Or that the mission of the church, maybe more specifically, is intended to you know, lobby and leverage influence politically. And I have no problem with, with citizens and people you know, living according to their conscience, living according to their faith and allowing that to play its way into the polls or into you know, even running for office and things like that. But you know, what, what has become this kind of engine, especially in the U.S., that we commonly known as the evangelical Christian right, um, that, that's not necessarily the primary focus that God has intended his restored spiritual society to have. That's not primarily the vision that God had for the mission of the church, that it would become politics. God intends politics to be politics and for the church to be the church. And so if you're wondering, you know, what we can focus on instead, I, I think that we can wrap things up today by, at the very least, being encouraged to focus on three things. You know, some state side, some church side, if we're thinking about the dynamics of the church and state. You know, starting with the state, I think that the Bible is very clear that all of us, whether we come from a faith background or not, all of us should pray for the government. All of us should pray for the government. First Timothy 2 says, pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. And dignity. Part of me wonders whether the increasing gong shows that we seem to be experiencing in our political climate might be a product of just a fundamental lack of prayer. We just failed to kind of really, you know, pour into to praying for these kind of things and think, oh, you know, we'll just kind of let, let that stuff happen. God encourages us to appeal to him as the sovereign convener of all things on earth and encourages us that prayer makes a difference. Another thing when it comes to the state or relating to the government um, is to be obedient, to be submissive to it, no matter who's in power, no matter which party uh, is in charge, whether you track with them or not, to be submissive to them. Look at what it says in Romans 13. It says, everyone must, be, must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, 
and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they'll be punished. Now, probably particularly relevant given what happened a week ago Tuesday. You know, for, for all of us, you know, no matter where we land on the political spectrum, to simply be submissive and obedient. And that doesn't mean that you don't push back or expect to hold government accountable. Doesn't mean that campaigns shouldn't, you know, challenge one another. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have official oppositions and, you know, contrary voices of opinion. It just means that we shouldn't constantly be criticizing and, and, and be negative and making the job of the government difficult. We should be submissive, compliant, obedient people that are supporting in unity the people who've been entrusted with the civic responsibilities of our society. Appreciating at the same time that the civic responsibilities are very distinct from the spiritual ones that God has entrusted to people of faith and to communities of faith together. And when it comes to the faith side, I think that one of the things the Bible says is to realize who the real enemy is in all this. Some people think that the real evil in the world is the political party that, you know, disagrees with them. Or worse, the leader of that political party. The Bible says that's not the real enemy. Look at what Ephesians 6 says. It says to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. To be spiritually strong. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now this may feel a bit creepy, especially for those of us who are new to this starting point conversation, but I'd want us to appreciate at the very least that when Jesus establishes a spiritual society, he does so because he understands that evil in our world is real. And evil has a source. And it's not the person you think it is. It's an invisible but very real spiritual enemy of God seeking to thwart and contravene the purposes of God in the world. Whom thankfully through his death and resurrection Jesus achieved victory over. And now when we trust in him can experience that victory in our lives and our communities and our societies as we engage more thoroughly and deeply and intensively in this movement of kingdom building called the church. That's what God's inviting us into at the end of the day, gang. You know, conversation on church and state is not ultimately about who God would vote for on November 8th for president of the United States. I think at some level, and I don't mean this you know, disparagingly, especially for people who have felt this very deeply, but I feel at some level that God doesn't really care who gets elected. God doesn't really care, you know, which political bias tends to govern a country, even a, most, a more significant country like the United States, for the next four years. We saw earlier this morning that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and empires come and empires go. One thing remains, though, and that is the timeless sovereignty and purposes of the God of the universe, who through his inside-out work of his son, Jesus Christ, can do what no government can ever do. That's what I hope that we appreciate today, that no government can make people compassionate, but the transforming power of the Spirit of God through a community even like ours can make a city like St. Catherine's, you know, become more of a compassionate city. You know, the government can define marriage, but the government can't make marriages stick together. It can't make broken families whole. The government can support, you know, 
addictions, but only the transforming, freeing, and healing power of Jesus Christ can truly set people free. Appreciate that the government in its outside-in political structures can only do so much. But if you and I and us together want the society we dream of, there actually is an answer. The answer is given through the person of Jesus Christ, but it is a very different story than the one we're experiencing politically. So my invitation to you today is to consider whether you would want to be part of that story. Because the gift of God through Jesus Christ is that you and I and us together can actually be part of that story in our day and age, no matter who we are and no matter what we've done up until now. It's funny, uh, the longer I've been processing this political climate, the more I've kind of felt like, like more people could actually use to be invited into that story. You know, I'm hoping in a couple days I'll be able to, to do that as well. I, I mentioned at our, at our last starting point conversation that uh, we were going to be participating in what Grant LaFleche called a forum. It was his idea and that we're actually going to be hosting it at our Glenridge location this coming Wednesday. But I, I need us to appreciate this isn't a church event. This is something that Grant LaFleche and our mutual friend Ted Meradian came up with that I'm going to participate in. They felt it would be best hosted in our facility that we have in St. Catharines, and so I've opened it up for them to, to do that. Um, we're going to have people from the community there. It's actually going to be a fundraiser for community care, which we're kind of excited about, but um, kind of as an official church event, uh, appreciate from a Southridge perspective, it isn't. That said, though, I hope that you'll not only pray about it, uh, I hope that if you have friends or family or coworkers or classmates or neighbors or teammates that would be interested in this sort of conversation, I would encourage you to bring them. Because, this is the thing, and I know that Grant alluded to it in our last starting point conversation, most of the voice of Christianity in our culture happens to be a political one. And unfortunately, most of the voice of Christianity in our culture happens to be a negative one, a critical one. And what guys like Grant LaFleche, and I'm sure what many of us today have been wondering is, is that the collective voice of followers of Jesus in Niagara? Or is there actually a contrary Christian voice? Can there be one? And I know it was convicting for me. I talked to many of you after our last starting point service that it was convicting for you to realize that our silence is appeared to be affirmation of that negative political Christian voice that's so commonly communicated in our society and in our media and I realized, you know, there's a time where we got to speak up. And so that's my hope and prayer in this forum that, you know, on behalf of us to some degree, but even at a personal level, that as a follower of Jesus, I can speak up and say, listen, this is what I dream of Niagara. This is what I dream for our society. And this is how I believe that God through Jesus Christ can make this happen. And how I believe that we as a people of faith can contribute to that. And how we as a people of faith can contribute in partnership with many other people. And so I'm kind of excited about that, certainly anxious about that, but I'm excited about it. Here's why. Because it's a different story. It's a different story than the mudslinging that we're used to. It's a different story than the polarization that we're used to. It's a different story than the negativity, the criticism, the harshness, and the vitriol that we're used to. 
It's an inside out transformational story. It's a unifying story. It's a groundswell movement of people who are being changed that can change people around them. And as changed people are changing people, all of a sudden people and communities and societies can be changed until we can experience what Jesus promises when he one day returns, that he will establish his kingdom on earth for all time as it is in heaven. And if you're in a place today, gang, where you're looking for something different, you're looking to experience a different story, I invite you to consider the life that Jesus Christ offers through this kingdom-building adventure called the church. I invite you to take steps of exploration, steps of seeking it out. Talk to the person you came with. And I invite you to experience this different story for yourself. Promising you on behalf of Jesus, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we're thankful for today, just your timeless activity throughout human history and the story that you've been telling and writing. A story that is healing brokenness, a story that is addressing sin at the core, a story of rescue and redemption, a story of restoration, a story of making all things whole. God, whether we come from a place of faith or not, we want that for ourselves. We want that for our society. We want that for our country and for our world. And I pray that, God, especially for those of us who've never found you before, that we would be encouraged to seek you out some more as a result of this. That we would discover exactly what you intended to do through your son. And that we would discover the difference that his risen spirit can have in our lives, that can have in our community and ultimately can have in our society. And God, as a church, I pray that we would stand up and be your voice for good and for change in our world. And I pray that as we do that, you would help us to be a kind of contrary picture to what we see in governments and politics and things like that. Help us to be an awe-inspiring and compelling picture that serves the world and invites them into it. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done across Niagara, across Canada, North America, and around our world as it is in heaven for your sake in the power of your son's risen spirit. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.